So in this episode, like five questions episodes of the past, I'm going to review some notes that didn't make into the last week's episode about why Excel invested in Facebook, Scale AI, and Flipkart, and why they passed on Cisco, Skype, and Flickr. I suggest you go listen to that episode if you haven't yet, uh, so you understand you know, what Excel's like as a firm, what they look for in founders, what they look for in companies. So in this episode, I review some notes that didn't make it into last week's episode to generate five questions I'd ask founders if I were a partner at Excel. So obviously, I don't know whether they asked these questions or not, but I have many direct quotes from current and former partners about what they look for in founders and questions they might ask founders when determining whether to invest in a company. So I can extrapolate some reasonable questions based off that. And so again, for those who haven't listened before, if you're a founder, I think this will be a helpful exercise to think about how you would answer some of these questions, um, as I believe there are questions that you know and, uh, many VC firms will ask, whether it's Excel or not. So, so really immerse yourself into this episode and, and think about how you'd answer the questions or how you could reposition your answers to the questions to make your startup sound a little more enticing to an investor. And for investors listening, these are questions from Excel, one of the best VC firms ever. So maybe you can add these questions to your book um, or at least think of other ways why you ask the questions you do or answers founders could give where they could go a little deeper that you didn't really think about before. So again, founders, investors, or people just curious, really immerse yourself and try to apply these questions and answers to your work uh, to get the most out of this episode. So the first question I'd ask is what's working now and what are the challenges? And so I think this question is important to ask because it's easy for entrepreneurs to get carried away with the dream. You know, obviously for going a salary and a secure job to start something completely new that is uncertain to work requires extreme optimism that you know what you are building will actually work. And that optimism and that willingness to take the jump is a beautiful thing, but it's important not to get too lost in the dream of the world you're trying to build. You know, the founder must stay in reality to recognize what's most important now to get to that future they're dreaming of. So current Excel partner Samir Gandhi has an excellent quote about how important it is for a founder to be realistic about what's working. As he once said, quote, are you realistic about what's working in your business and where the challenges are, or are you promotional about it and maybe not truly accepting what the reality is? Because a lot of times when you're in an up market, it's about vanity metrics and showing growth that might be low calorie growth and getting up rounds done. You sort of lose sight of the things that are more fundamental. And I think just being realistic about it especially when you're talking with your investors, your team, and then understanding what the problems are that you have to go tackle to make the business better, end quote. And so this quote would have been way more pertinent in 2021 when every startup was getting funded. And at the time, it was all about the grand vision you have for your product and the growth you were achieving, even if it was artificially propped up by extremely high customer acquisition costs, as we're now seeing a lot of those businesses come back down to earth. Um, that's what Samir means when he says vanity growth in that quote. No, not real growth, not product-led growth, but 
paid acquisition-led growth. But in 2024, the key now is growth backed by product market fit with a path to profitability, you know, product-led growth. If founders haven't adopted this mindset and become realistic about their path forward, they probably won't be around much longer. As again, we're seeing many companies fall from unicorn heaven back down to earth and into some sticky situations. So again, back to the question, by asking what the business's current challenges are, I can check whether the entrepreneur is realistic about what's happening in his or her business. If I just ask, you know, what's working well, then I'll get the optimistic vision that every entrepreneur likes to talk about. And that's great to hear as an investor because, you know, I want to feel that optimism too. But by asking about the challenges, I can make sure this founder understands how to run a cash flowing business and isn't just having fun, you know, dreaming about the future. Answering this question requires realism, but more importantly, it requires honesty and openness, two traits that are vital for an effective partnership between a founder and an investor. And co-founding partner of Excel, Jim Swartz, talks about how important these traits are in founders he invests in when he once said, quote, I think the number one thing to me is openness. By openness, I mean founders have to be incredibly persistent, focused, and driven, and they have to lead, but at the same time, they have to listen. They have to simultaneously listen and be open to hearing what's going on around them and being able to adjust. I think along with that comes intellectual honesty, particularly in today's world where you wonder whether anybody's honest. It's important, end quote. By asking about the challenges, I get insight into where my money will be used for. Now, effective CEOs are excellent at identifying challenges and the means to which eliminating them. And as discussed in previous episodes, that's essentially a never-ending loop for a CEO, identifying challenges and figuring out how to solve them and repeat. <laughs> but as Jim Swartz mentions, this question also helps me understand who this founder is as a person. You know, Are they honest about their situation to their investors, employees, and customers? Are they actionable about addressing those challenges facing the business? Or do they just push them off and focus on you know, what's going well and, and, and what's fun. Essentially, I'm asking this question because I need to know that the founder's attention is on recognizing and mitigating the challenges facing the business. And I need to know that the founder is truthful in general, because if they aren't truthful with me, then they likely aren't truthful with their employees and customers either. So why would anyone want to work with them? So for founders, a strong answer to this question is first to emphasize you know, all the great things you've been able to do and accomplish up to this point. Brag as hard as you possibly can, because again, I'm starting this question by asking what's going well. So list it all as wonderfully sounding as possible. You know, brag as hard as you possibly can. But when I ask what are the challenges facing the business, I need you to be completely transparent about your challenges. You know, don't make them so you know doom and gloom, like this is a challenge we're never gonna, Apple's just gonna kill us in the app store, we can never get around them. You know, don't tell me that because then I'm not gonna invest, but because you know you're selling. So focus more on the optimistic vision, but be realistic about the issues you face and frame it in a way that if I give you money, you'll be able to use that money to resolve those challenges, to address those issues and mitigate them, and then move forward towards the next milestone. So 
overall, just be realistic and open with your investors when pitching, but more importantly, probably <laughs> exude confidence and optimism. It's a, a delicate balance, but being truthful, being honest, it shows you're mature, shows you know everything about your business, it shows you're realistic, and it shows that you can identify and mitigate problems, which we talked about in the past as being a really important trait that investors like to see in founders. So that's what I'd be looking for when I ask the question, what's going well and what are some of the challenges facing your business? So question number two, how do you know this is a problem? So I'm going to tee off this section with a quote from current partner at Excel, Amit Kumar, on something he looks for in founders. He once said, quote, does this person really understand the problem and do they have an authentic connection to it? I know that sounds very basic, but you'd be surprised. I think it's very easy to fall in love with a solution or a product without truly understanding the problem. And if you fall in love with the problem, you can be flexible on the solution. You can change your mind. But if you're fixed on a solution, you're probably going to go down with a ship if you don't nail it the first time. I think this is a huge problem many entrepreneurs have when starting a business. They dream about the solution they can build for a problem that doesn't actually exist. Like Kumar says, they fall in love with the solution, but they don't fall in love with the problem. Because it's really fun to imagine a really cool product with so many features and capabilities that you know look incredible in your head, but sometimes no one else agrees with you. Or maybe they think it sounds cool, but they aren't going to pay for that because they don't need it. So you can't build a business off of that. And that's why so many of the best companies weren't trying to start a company when they did. You know, going on the whiteboard and brainstorming startup ideas for a business almost never works. There's like never an origin story to a company that has to do with me and a few friends were writing ideas on a whiteboard. <laughs> that's very rare. That's solution-based thinking. Often the best startups are founded when founders keep running into frustrating problems and they just can't take it anymore, so they build a solution for it. Oftentimes, you'd be, you'd be surprised to hear how many entrepreneurs said they built their product for themselves and then just realized other people would want it too. And then it became a business and they sold it and made a lot of money from it. So by building for a problem rather than the solution, you know you're creating something that addresses a problem. If you're frustrated by this problem, chances are at least some of the 8 billion people in the world are frustrated by that problem too. So you have a chance to sell it to them, sell your solution to them. And by taking it this way, you really understand a customer's pain point because you're focused on the problem, just like that customer has been dealing with that problem, just like you have. An Excel partner, Vas Natarajan, talked about why this is such an important quality in founders when he once said, quote, one is a real appreciation for the customer's pain point. We always talk about this when we meet entrepreneurs. Are they speaking the language of the technology or are they speaking the language of the customer problem? Finding founders that are just deeply intimate with their customers and their needs is going to be very critical in this era of very rapid change, end quote. So I love the way he frames this as, are they speaking the tech language of the technology? As in, you know, look at this awesome product I can build. Or are they speaking the language of the customer, as in, you know, look at this product I built to solve this really tedious problem that X number of people face. And so I think this is why so many investors have skated away from consumer apps that dominated, you know, the early 2000s 
and towards B2B software apps that are dominating, you know, the 2020s. Because first of all, you know, B2B software apps, you know, aren't really exciting. So typically a founder isn't starting this company because, you know, they'd love to build an HR platform because it sounds like a really cool technical problem. Most likely they're building that product because they recognize many HR employees are struggling using various software and would love, you know, a platform-based solution, for example. And the second reason investors are targeting more B2B apps that are B2B software than consumer apps, because many consumer apps are actually built in this solution-based lens. Now, the idea in your head sounds so cool, but, you know, people already have Instagram, TikTok, Candy Crush, you know, whatever else people do on their phones for three or four hours a day. Their attention is already fully booked. And they certainly don't have a problem of needing to be entertained on their phone. They have plenty of apps for that. So when I ask this question, I'm hoping the founder has a problem-driven origin story. Either they felt this way about the problem themselves or know customers who have, and then they know how to solve that problem. That's a smart investment because I know the problem exists. On the other hand, when a founder comes in and pitches this really cool drone technology or this really fun new social network, but has no data from like customer surveys or meeting with customers about how this technology actually solves a problem for a consumer, then I'm a lot more hesitant because like I said, people are already overstimulated with things to do. The only way they're going to buy something new is if it solves a problem for them. Not because it sounds marginally cooler or marginally more fun than what they currently do on a day-to-day basis. That's not enough to move the needle for them to make a purchasing decision. So if you as a founder have this problem-driven origin story, then you're in great shape. If you're on the opposite side, a fun consumer idea, I'm not saying it won't work, but I'm saying you got to gather as much data as you possibly can from talking to your users and conducting surveys to Suss out whether this is actually something they'd use frequently. You know, if you can target a really specific niche at first and get those people really interested in your product, then there might be something there. But just saying this is something cool and even showing some early growth data isn't really enough sometimes because likely they'll churn when it's no longer exciting. There'll be another consumer app that'll interest them a little more than yours and they'll go check that out or they'll just go back to the script at the end of the day. So no matter what you're building, it just has to solve some type of problem for the consumer. It can be an individual consumer product aspect, but has to solve some type of problem. It can't just be a little more fun or a little more entertaining. That's the only way customers will actually pay for something. That's why B2B software has been such a hot investing market because they're all problem-oriented product development journeys. They're all based on solving a problem for a business that they go through all the time that they have the budget to pay for, whereas an individual consumer does not have many problems when it comes to technology today. So again, question number two is how do you know this is a problem? Question number three is what's your team like? We've mentioned many times on this podcast how important a good team is to a startup. Last week, we even talked about how A great team is actually more important than the idea or the product in the eyes of an early stage investor because it severely de-risks their investment. You know, Excel was interested in the idea of scale AI, 
but they were very interested in how exceptional you know, Alexander Wayne and Lucy Guo, the founders, were at such a young age. You know, they, they knew they were geniuses and they could probably figure something out. So it's worth backing them because you know that such an exceptional founding team de-risked that investment. Whether the idea or product worked out or not, building that relationship with exceptional people is very valuable at the early stage. Because you know, getting to product market fit may be the hardest part of starting a company. You know, in other words, building something people want. Therefore, early stage investors can't be sure your idea will pan out or your product will be the, the one that users want. But they can be sure that you and your team are exceptional builders. And so if that's the case, the, an investor can take a chance on you and your current idea, which will likely have one of three things that happen. First, the idea will pan out. Customers will buy your product. The company scales and everyone's happy. The company makes a lot of money. Investors make a lot of money. Founders make a lot of money. Example of that would be Google. It's just basically up and to the right the whole time because the product's just so great from day one. The second scenario is that the idea doesn't pan out, but you pivot and then the new idea pans out and customers buy your product, it scales, everyone makes money, everyone's happy. This is like when TinySpec pivoted from a failing game company to Slack, a multi-billion dollar enterprise software company. Or the third scenario that often happens in startups is this initial idea doesn't pan out, there's no pivot or an unsuccessful pivot and the company shuts down. But then the founder starts a new company. That idea pans out, customers buy that product, that product scales, successful, everyone's happy. Example of this would be Evan Williams, who originally founded Odeo, which didn't work out. That was like an early podcast app. Didn't work out, but then he went on to co-found Twitter. That really worked out. <laughs> so number one, the Google example rarely happens. And so number two and three happen more often. And number two and three only happen when there are exceptional entrepreneurs supported by exceptional teams to figure problems out, to pivot and start a new product or to start something completely new, which if that investor and founder have built a partnership in the past, they will likely work together again. So that's why early stage investors love to back exceptional founders and exceptional teams more so than exceptional ideas because it's a less risky investment because there are more possible outcomes. You know, if you're just thinking about the product, only the first scenario, the Google example is really a good outcome because, you know, if the product's not successful, you're not happy, but you have the potential for the Google case, the tiny spec to Slack case, the Odeo to Twitter case. If you built that relationship with the founder and there's mutual trust there, the founder will come back to you for their second company, or you can help guide the founder to nail the pivot or the founder knows how to pivot and will just nail it on themselves. But these founders never do it alone. They always have exceptional teams around them. And typically because it's that they're exceptional themselves. You know, Stuart Butterfield of Slack created a great team at Slack because he was such a good leader. He was a multiple time founder. Same with Evan Williams at Twitter. Same with the Google team, not, you know, multi-time founders, but just geniuses in their own right and just very well respected among community scientists, solving hard problems. So all these founders were able to build super teams around them that they could trust to help them deliver the product. So that's an important reason why 
Excel co-founding partner, Jim Swartz, we mentioned earlier, suggests that founders surround themselves with the best. He once said, quote, you get smart about whatever you're doing. Figure out who the very best people are and watch what they're doing and intersect it with a group of people, not just yourself, but with a group of supporting cast, if you will, that helps you succeed, end quote. And so many of you may have heard this before, but there's this classic Steve Jobs quote that's along the lines of A players hire A players, B players hire C players, C players hire D players, and soon you have a team of F players. And a small team of A-plus players can run circles around a giant team of B and C players. And that second quote is especially true. And if you don't believe me, just look at what OpenAI is doing to Google. I mean, OpenAI is a small team of A-plus players just dominating a massive team of B and C players in you know large language models, AI search, and so on and so forth. And so this is why Steve Jobs said the most important function as the CEO of Apple, was recruiting. He spent more time on recruiting than any other task because he knew how vital it was to hire A players consistently so they could hire more A players and so on and become a successful company because they were just a super team in of itself. They can't fail. They're too talented. They have too many smart people to figure out hard problems. And as hard as that sounds, you know, to find so many A players is actually a piece that's harder for many founder CEOs and takes many years to develop, which is not only finding that team and recruiting that team to join you on your vision, on your company, but then you have to learn how to trust that team of A players. Another quote from Jim Schwartz, the co-founding partner of Excel, who's a really bright guy, he once said, quote, learn to trust. Trust is an incredibly important concept. People talk about letting go and letting go is all about trust and having the confidence in your teammates or your subordinates or whatever to do the right things and to have confidence in them. The other thing is think globally and act locally. I think that's the foundation of Excel's global practice. We adopted that premise on day one. We never tried to make decisions from a distance. We got good people, trusted them, and allowed them to make their own decisions, end quote. So chances are, you know, if you're an exceptional founder and have are able to recruit exceptional people to work on this project with you, chances are you'll hire people better than you at engineering or sales or marketing. And you just have to accept that. And you have to take a backseat and trust them to run their tasks fueled by their own fantastic abilities. Now, if you've been doing sales for the last six months yourself, but you hire a VP of sales with experience from Google or Microsoft or NVIDIA or whatever, chances are that person with their 10 years of experience has more than your six months of experience and is better at that task than you. So you have to be able to take a back seat to them and trust them to flourish based on their abilities. And so when Jim Swartz in this quote, he talks about Excel, how they started an office in India and they gave that new team completely autonomy to invest in a new market. Now those partners in India knew the India market better than the Excel partners in the Bay Area. Even though the Excel partners in the Bay Area had more experience investing, the Indian partners knew more about investing in India specifically, so they were more qualified. So the Excel team hired A players to go invest in India, and they trusted them to execute their vision and their theses. Because of that, they've made billions of dollars on investments like Flipkart and Freshworks to Indian multi-billion dollar companies. 
So when I ask the founder this question again, you know, what's your team like? I want them to rave about their team. I want them to feel pride in being able to tell me that they don't do sales anymore or they don't do marketing anymore. They don't do engineering anymore because the people they hired to lead those pursuits are just so exceptional and they're rock stars and that the CEO just needs to focus on recruiting more rock stars and speaking to the customers and just having that flywheel, letting the specialists take care of the specialties. And by you know, the founder recognizing their employees' abilities and the importance of hiring them, the founder is showing me he or she recognizes the importance of hiring exceptional teams, which again, as I talked about before, makes the, all three of the options I've laid out earlier possible because now I'm not only backing a strong idea like Google search, but I'm backing an excellent team to figure out what will happen if the first idea doesn't work. The team that can turn TinySpec into Slack or Odeo into Twitter and that founder at the helm being able to recruit exceptional teams time and time again. And by raving about their teams, I can tell the founder trusts them to execute their work. They're willing to give them autonomy. Now, I want a founder who recognizes the importance of hiring A players and has the confidence and trust in them to delegate important tasks that can be handled better by several specialists than by one individual founder scared to give up control. <laughs> you know, this shows me that, you know, the founder is willing to take that back seat and give autonomy to their employees. It shows me the founder's charismatic enough to sell incredible people to join them on this vision and help build out this product and service. And it shows me that they have the leadership abilities to bring them in, show them the ropes, and then take the back seat and let them thrive. That's a good founder who can put together a super team that substantially de-risks my investment at an early stage. So again, question number three, or what is your team like? Question number four, after going internally, now we're going externally, is what's your competition like? And so whether to worry about competition is always an interesting topic. You know, most companies think about competition and most investors would advise them to keep competition in the back of their mind. Other founders like Jeff Bezos emphasize that focusing on the competition is irrelevant and whoever focuses on maximizing value for their customer ultimately wins. Whoever provides the most value ultimately wins. Competition is irrelevant. So I personally align more with the Jeff Bezos camp because you know, I believe simply how can you disagree with him? <laughs> He's one of the best founders of our generation and his ethos of just Focusing intensely on the customer leads to the best outcomes in the long run. Clearly, that was true, proven to be true. But I do recognize it's important to keep competitors in the back of your mind. You know, while your primary scoreboard, for example, should be on your own comps, your own company's metrics, and your own customers' satisfaction ratings, how are you creating the most value for customers? I don't see harm in peeking at the leaderboards occasionally to see how your competition is doing. And if they're, more importantly, if they're doing anything you aren't. After all, Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, was a huge influence on Jeff Bezos. And Sam Walton frequently browsed his competitors' stores and would often steal their ideas and implement them into his stores if they thought they were good ideas. By doing so, he was essentially taking all the best parts of each individual store, combining them into one store being Walmart, that then was just 
a conglomeration of the best ideas in retail, making Walmart a unique and supreme place to shop. So handling competition is interesting, but I like the way co-founding partner of Excel, Arthur Patterson, advises entrepreneurs deal with competition. He once said, quote, every entrepreneur believes everybody else is competing with him. Actually, they very seldom compete with one another or even ever see each other on the marketplace. Marketplaces are very large, and it turns out if they know some particular thing, everybody's got their own angle of approaching the markets. The good entrepreneurs always have a lot of paranoid characteristics, though, so that's really good, end quote. I think Patterson says two interesting things that are true. Entrepreneurs are inherently competitive, therefore they feel like they're in a constant competition, which is why every startup tries to move fast as possible. An extreme example is Uber and Lyft directly competing with one another and spending billions of dollars on their operations and marketing to win you know, this nearly winner-take-all market. But what's also interesting about this example is that Lyft started a few years after Uber with a unique way of approaching the ride-sharing market. Now, Uber was originally black cars only, so every driver was professional. Lyft started as a peer-to-peer driving service where anyone could sign up with a car and a license and drive people around, which most would consider to be rideshare today. Interestingly, Uber wanted to acquire Lyft to adopt their service, but you know, Lyft wouldn't accept the deal, Uber wouldn't pay enough. And so when Lyft began eating Uber's market share in ride-sharing from their cheaper peer-to-peer ride-sharing strategy, Uber decided to release UberX. Uber's peer-to-peer ride-sharing service that became the most popular service on Uber, which I'd assume most people take today. You often take UberX's, and it made them multiples more valuable than Lyft. Had Uber not released UberX, who knows what would have happened? Lyft could have taken the market share over. And so the only way Uber won this battle was because, you know, founder and former CEO Travis Kalanick was very paranoid about the competition which Patterson considers a good trait. Since Travis recognized Lyft as a real threat due to their unique angle on the market, Uber took on Lyft head-on at their own game in peer-to-peer ride-sharing and ultimately won. So when I ask this question, I want the founder to focus on the customer. First and foremost, that's obviously the most important. Competition is irrelevant if you're not focused on your customer. I'm still a Jeff Bezosian when it comes to that. But I need to know that they aren't blinded by the competition because there are potentially valuable opportunities for you to grow that you can learn from your competition, just like Sam Walton and Travis Kalanick. So yes, Jeff Bezos is right, customers first and foremost, but in competitive markets, it's good to research and analyze your competition to see if there are any new products or services or strategies or unique angles you can adopt to enhance the experience for your customers that you can adopt from your competition and ideally provide the service your competitors provide in a better way under your service because then again customers are happier for that that's good for the customers so that's the first reason gives you ideas to provide more value for your customers the second reason i'd ask this question is if the founder isn't completely creating a new market and is the first mover, you know, it helps me know that they've studied the competitive landscape and how your company fits in it. 
you know, Google releasing a new search engine. I need to know why Google is unique and why they feel they can fit in the super crowded market that's already littered with other search engines. And so Excel partner, Anand Daniel, discussed how important this was when he said, quote, ideas don't build a company, but converting them to something tangible does. The first step towards this is understanding the market potential of your idea. Every startup knows the importance of market research towards making the product or service successful, but the way you evaluate the market is crucial. If an entrepreneur doesn't know his market in terms of size, demographics, and the customer's needs, then it will be difficult for his or her venture to sustain long-term. Also, market valuation is one of the key factors for any venture capitalist to consider the potential of investing in a startup, end quote. So the founders could have a great idea, but they haven't studied the market and the competitive landscape. They could be unaware that someone is already building something similar to their product or offering. It might not be as obvious as, you know, two vacation home marketplaces. You know, Airbnb knew Verbo existed and was essentially directly competing. You know, therefore, Airbnb couldn't start as a full-on vacation home rental service because that's what Verbo was doing. And Airbnb likely would not be able to capture as much market share early on in a direct competitive landscape to succeed. So Airbnb started with couch surfing and renting out a single room and built customer loyalty and a strong brand. So then they could expand into full vacation home rentals, which allowed them to take over the market. Now the average person looks for vacation homes on Airbnb first rather than Verbo, I think at least, because Airbnb has a stronger brand. So that's a pretty obvious one when analyzing the competitive landscape. What's a little less obvious and a little trickier and could be a major risk to the entrepreneur if he or she hasn't studied the competitive landscape thoroughly and an expanded version, the competitive landscape, the extended competitive landscape, as in, you know, these products aren't direct competitors, but are they similar enough to the fact that the customer won't pay for both? And since the incumbent has lock-in, they'll just stick with the incumbent. Then it could be hard to compete. And so an example is Clubhouse versus Twitter Spaces. And you know, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Twitter Spaces is more popular than Clubhouse today. Even though Clubhouse exploded onto the scene in 2020. You know, Clubhouse thought they were competing with podcasting and were unique by hosting live conversations rather than recorded podcasts felt more immersive. The problem is, and whether the Clubhouse team recognized this or not, who knows, but once Twitter released Twitter Spaces, essentially the same thing, since they were the incumbent and already had all those users and all that market share, this is already a place people hung out, everyone just stayed on Twitter because you know they already had the app, all their friends were there. Why would they also go to Clubhouse for something they can just do on Twitter? And so I don't know whether Clubhouse felt this was a risk originally or not, but it turned out to be a huge problem. So preparing for incumbents to take your market is vital, and you have to find a way to, defense your, to defend yourself around that. Same thing happened with Snapchat being unique from, you know, not only the, the picture texting, I guess you could call it, but also Snapchat stories. That was huge. People thought Snapchat stories were so cool. Then Instagram just released Instagram stories and basically flatlined Snapchat as Instagram has continued to skyrocket. So it's hard 
but it's important for a founder to understand competition so that they can sense what might happen. You know, if they're directly competing with someone else, they have to have a unique angle in that market. That's great. That's the Airbnb model. But if you're Clubhouse or a company like that, you have to be careful about the incumbents sliding into your market and taking some of your market share, which incumbents would just, or which users would just likely stick with the incumbent for, even if the product isn't as good as the one you're building. So every startup needs a unique spin. And by studying the competition at, at the inception of your company and as you expand, hopefully you can constantly find ways to offer differentiated service to your customers from that of your competitor. So when I ask this question, again, what's your competition like? I'm hoping for the founder to understand the competition so they know how to beat them. Now, I'd certainly want them to be paranoid about their competition and to study them and to be on the lookout for you know, copycat products being released by incumbents, but I don't want them to be obsessed to the point that they're trying to beat the competition rather than provide the best service possible for their customers. Because again, as Jeff Bezos said, the company that provides the best value for customers wins out in the long term. So focus on your competitors, monitor them, but... Don't forget to provide the most value you possibly can for your customers. That's how you grow as a business. So I know I said five questions, but unfortunately, the Excel partners don't democratize that much information. So it's hard to find another differentiated question from one I've discussed in past podcast episodes. So I'm stopping at four. I want this to stay high value, not just to check a box. I'm stopping with four questions. Um so sorry for the lie at the beginning of saying of calling this episode five questions, four questions I'd ask if I was a partner at Excel. So I hope you learned something from this, founders and investors. I hope you figured out how to better answer these questions or why to maybe ask these questions yourselves. We learned a little more about your strategy. If you like this episode, I recommend listening to past five questions episodes. I think my favorite was the one on benchmark. Um, if you want to start there. As always, if you prefer to read, then listen to podcast episodes. You can go to my Substack, All Things VC. Link will be in the show notes, and you can essentially just read very similar content from this podcast episode and every podcast in the past. Um, you can also go to my YouTube page for short clips. Link will be in the show notes for that. Lastly, you can follow me on X or Twitter at Justin underscore Prior underscore for just random snippets or random for other snippets of past episodes, a little deeper dive on certain topics or just random thoughts that pop in my head. Uh, you can follow me there and stay tuned for next week. We will return to our traditional deep dive format on another exceptional VC firm, one that's been around for many years, like an Excel, except I think even longer than Excel which you might guess if you know what their name is. <laughs> They've been around for quite some time. So, you know, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it. Uh, if you also have some time, would love for you to give us a rating if you like the podcast episode. But regardless, thank you for listening. Stay tuned for next week and have a great rest of your day.